Romans chapter 5 again today. Paul often uses a technique known as inclusio in his writings. Inclusio is the practice of bringing out the theme of a section by heading that section and then concluding it with key terms or with similar phraseology. It's sort of like an ancient form of the call-out. You know what a call-out is when an editor in a magazine or a newspaper takes a section from the text and enlarges it, um, bolds the font, and then puts a border around it? Well, inclusio is a kind of bordered call-out from the first century. We have an inclusio in chapter 5. The opening sentence of the first section ends with the words, this is verse 2, we rejoice, but literally we boast in the hope of the glory of God. The final sentence in this section ends in verse 11 with the words, we also rejoice, again literally boast, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have received reconciliation. The theme in, in this passage, verses 1 through 11, is boasting in the God who gives us hope. Now that's plain enough, but there are also some surprises along the way. So we're going to read it. Remember chapter 5 is a bridge chapter. Uh, we look back at what God has done for us, and Paul's talked about in the first four chapters, and we look ahead to see what he's going to do in us and for us in the future. So let's read verses 6 through 11, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. That might be better translated. Hardly will anyone die. It's not just how often it happens, but hardly will it ever happen that Anyone will die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more? Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice or boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. I said there's some surprises along the way. The chief surprise is that people like us have a hope in which we can genuinely boast. People like us. Have you ever been described by someone in less than glowing terms or in ways that sort of made you squirm? Sometimes people are intentionally trying to make you feel bad. Uh, that happens to me. I, I regularly get responses to my column, at least a few, most weeks, and most of those are positive and encouraging, but every once in a while I get one that's, and how should I put this, that is not. Um, I've been told I'm a jerk, been labeled unintelligent, bigoted, backwards. My favorite of the unkind descriptions was a guy who just said, people like you are no longer relevant. Ouch. (laughs) And those are people who don't like me. But sometimes people who do like me describe me in less than glowing terms, forgetful, scatterbrained, cluttered organizationally challenged, uh, 
forgetful. Did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> and these are my friends. I don't much like those descriptions, but I can't say there's no truth in them. Well, in our text, Paul has four descriptors of us that we might not much care for, but that we're going to find hard to deny. He says that before we were with Christ, okay, before we were with Christ, we were powerless, that's verse 5. We were ungodly, verse 5. We were sinners, verse 8, and we were enemies, verse 10. Now, when people who dislike you call you names like that, you might take it with a grain of salt. But Paul does not dislike us. In fact, he's on our side. So we better pay attention to what he's saying. So first he calls us powerless. The Greek word could be literally translated weak. And it's a word that often in the New Testament means ill. It was used of people who were physically disabled, for example. But Paul's thinking of us as spiritually disabled. We couldn't take care of ourselves. We'd fallen in Adam's fall, and we're going to see much more about that next week. I mean, next week we get the theological basis for this week. We'd fallen in Adam's fall, and we couldn't get up. And as a matter of fact, we couldn't stop falling. We were in a bad place, and there was nothing that we could do to help ourselves. We could honestly say, there's nothing I can do about it. Now, sometimes people say that as a way of excusing themselves. But excuses are quite beyond the, beside the point. If you jump out of an airplane and your chute doesn't open, you can excuse yourself all the way down, but it's not going to help. You can say, it's not my fault. There's nothing I can do about it. But you're still going to hit the ground hard unless some expert skydiver manages to get his arms around you and employ his chute. And that essentially is what Christ has done for us on the cross. We were powerless. That's the first description of, of us. The second is that we were ungodly. Now, ungodly is not quite the same thing as wicked. If we hear someone described as ungodly, we generally think of that person as like a gangbanger, a drug dealer, or people who prey on the elderly or the poor, or husbands and wives who repeatedly are unfaithful to their spouses. In other words, we think of someone else. But when Paul chose this word, it was not those kinds of people he had in mind, or at least not primarily. This word doesn't describe people without morals. It describes people without God. People who neither think about him nor care what he thinks about them. The ungodly are people who make decisions as if God doesn't matter. They may be moral by society standards or not. They may pay their taxes and have good manners, and obey traffic laws or not. But in day-to-day life, they act as if God isn't there, as if he doesn't matter. These were the people that Paul described back in chapter 1, who neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him, the people who substituted other things for God and eventually just stopped thinking about him. Who, who did not think it worthwhile, this is the way Paul put it in chapter 1, verse 28, who did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Paul's not talking about Adolf Hitler's or Saddam Hussein's, but ordinary people, people just like us, for whom God is unimportant. Those are the ungodly. And that would describe many of us at some point in our lives, and maybe some of us even now. 
Paul's next characterization of us in our former lives is sinners. Now that's verse 8. His language is awkward for us in English. It's something like, while we were still being sinners. Sin, says St. John, is lawlessness, and a sinner is anyone who rejects God's authority to tell him or her what to do. Now, a sinner might do terrible things by society standards, Jeffrey Dahmer things, or he might be a blood donor who delivers meals on wheels. But when what he thinks is best for him differs from what God has told him to do, he'll do his own thing. Not once, but a hundred times, thousand times, 10,000 times. He will prove over and over again that he and not God is Lord of his life. Okay? Sinner. And there's one more category into which our lives, our former lives fit. And this is verse 10. We were God's enemies. That is strong language. We didn't just ignore God. We opposed him. You say, when did I ever do that? Every time you knew what was right and didn't do it. Every time you refused to cooperate with God in his work. But mostly, and this is what is in Paul's mind, mostly when you did not submit to God's king. If you defy God's king, you are God's enemy. It's as simple as that. That's how Paul describes people who have not confessed Jesus as Lord. Powerless, godless, sinners, enemies. And how do you think God feels about such people? Well, how do you feel about your enemies? The people who ignore you, who reject you, who go against your wishes, or set themselves and their desires against your own. How does God feel about his enemies? Enemies is a war word. Towards the end of every war, what people feel about their enemies is expressed, often in atrocities. The winning side takes revenge on the losing side. At the end of World War II, the Allies did that. They participated in those atrocities. They had learned how at the Battle of the Bulge, the SS lined up U.S. soldiers after they'd surrendered and gunned them down. Just gunned them down after they surrendered, weaponless. And they were angry. They, some of them had seen the nightmarish horrors when they liberated the death camps, and it had shaken them badly. After hearing and seeing these things, they were tempted to take revenge. When, for example, they freed the prisoners in Buchenwald, they stood aside and allowed them to tear their former guards limb from limb as they watched. At the end of the war, young German soldiers raised the white flag, and some of these soldiers at the end of the war were 15 and 16 years old. They raised the white flag to make their surrender, and as they approached with white flag waving, Allied soldiers, filled with hate and the desire for revenge, gunned them down. That's how people treat their enemies. And listen, Paul has just said, and rightly so, that we were God's enemies. And we still are if we refuse to acknowledge his son as our rightful ruler. How does God treat his enemies? The answer to that question is right at the heart of the good news of this letter. God treats his enemies with grace. Grace. 
He offers them pardon at unimaginable expense to himself. He accepts them over to his side. Look at what the text says about God's attitude toward his enemies. This is verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for, the word means on behalf of the ungodly. We were powerless. Skydivers whose chutes don't open. We couldn't help ourselves. We're on the wrong side and we couldn't change sides. We were ungodly. We ignored God most of the time, complained about him some of the time, and tried to use him as if we were the boss and he was the servants the rest of the time. And it was then, not later, not after we recognized our foolishness and admitted our guilt and complicity, but then, when we were hopeless and helpless and useless, that Christ died for us. When Brennan Manning was in Korea, he was sitting in a foxhole with his best friend, Ray. He and Ray had grown up together. They had joined the army together. Uh, They had gone to boot camp together. And now they were serving together in Korea. Ray was sitting in the foxhole eating a candy bar, and the two of them were talking about the old days in Brooklyn. In the rough and threatening seas of war, they had somehow found a little lee. But it was just then that a grenade, where did it come from, landed in the hole with them. Ray looked at his friend, smiled, dropped his candy bar, and threw himself on the grenade. He died, but Manning was saved. He never could understand his friend's sacrificial love. It amazed and humbled him for the rest of his life. What Jesus did for us is like what Manning's friend did for him. With this difference, Jesus didn't throw himself on the grenade or he didn't die on the cross for his best friends, but for his committed enemies. It was as if if Ray had thrown himself on a grenade, not to save his friend, but the North Korean regulars who would have killed him without a thought. Why would God do this? How could he do this? See, God did not wait for us to come to our senses. He didn't wait until we realized that we had no more options and had come begging for forgiveness. Verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love. He puts it on display. It's a strong word. For us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By the way, on Wednesday night at Go Deep, we're going to talk about, are you still a sinner? If you've trusted Christ as your Savior? It's an important question, and the answer depends on how you understand the word, if you understand it biblically or not. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for us because he would have been waiting forever. He knew we wouldn't ask. We would never come to our senses. God knew what we needed before we knew, and he did what he always does. He took the initiative because he's the God who knows what you need before you ask. And that's not just about money, it's also about forgiveness and transformation and hope. You know, if you want to know how people treat God, look at the cross. See Jesus there rejected, humiliated, and tortured, and you'll know how people treat God. When God came among us, that's how we treated him. 
You might say, no, not me, I wasn't there. But don't kid yourself. Those people, the ones who nailed Jesus to the cross, they were just, just people, ordinary guys following orders. The ones who gave the orders, they were just people trying to look out for themselves, telling themselves they had no other choice. There's nothing I can do about it. The ones who stood by while it happened, they were just people who maybe said that they disagreed with what was happening but didn't do anything to stop it. Those people were just like these people. When God came to them, they got rid of him. And when God has come to us by his spirit over and over when he's told us not to sin, we've pushed him aside and done what we wanted to do. We couldn't have been more blatant about it if we'd nailed him to a cross. Do you want to know what people think of God? Look at the cross. And guess what? If you want to know what God thinks of people, look at the cross. God demonstrates He puts on display his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross shows us who we were and who God has always been. At the cross, we learn, as Tim Keller put it, that we're more sinful than we ever dared believe. And we are more loved than we ever dared hope. You know, in war, the common people fight for the uncommon people. That's the way it works. They fight for the prime minister, the president, or the king. They sacrifice, they die for the uncommon people. Think of a game of chess. The first and last responsibility of every pawn, knight, bishop, rook, and queen is to save the king even at the cost of sacrificing its own life. But in the ancient war between the God of light and the spiritual forces of darkness, the rules are very different. It's the king who saves not his friends, but his enemies at the cost of sacrificing himself. This is what our God is like. This is what God has done for us. Done for us when we weren't on his side, when we tried to push him away and do our own thing. But Paul goes further. If this is how God treated us in the past, remember we're on a bridge, we're looking back at the past. Now let's look to the future. How will he treat us in the future if he's treated us this way in the past? And that brings us back to that inclusio I talked about at the beginning. It brings us back to hope. Verses 9 and 10. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Do you notice the how much more is of these verses? Paul's argument is known technically as a minori a maias, which means from the minor to the major. You can Let me give you an illustration of that. You're a missionary living in Latin America, and you are in desperate need of some medical technology, and you have no means of acquiring it. You can't afford it, and even if you could, no one has it. 
So I learn about your situation, so I cash in my retirement savings, everything I have. I take the money and I buy the tech. I go to UPS to arrange overnight delivery at a cost of thousands of dollars. I've done everything but give UPS the address. Now will I walk away without doing that? Having done so much, having sacrificed so much, will I not do just a little bit more? That's aminore admias. If God made a way for us to receive the status that we need to live in his kingdom, if he justified us through the costly way of the blood of his son, will he not take care of us now that we're in his kingdom? Will he not complete the work he's begun? Will he not save us from the final offensive when his enemies fall? If at his initiative he reconciled us to himself through his son's death while we were his enemies, won't he go the entire distance and save us now that we're his friends? It's the same argument Paul will use in chapter 8 when he writes, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We're standing on that bridge. We're looking back at what God has done for us and frankly, what he's done in spite of us. We're looking at what he did to find us when we wanted to be lost, to change us when we wanted to stay the same. Seeing what he's done when we were enemies, we have every reason to hope he will help us now that we're his friends. He's won our confidence. He's demonstrated his trustworthiness. And he's done it through the cross of Christ. Now, maybe you're not so sure of that. So, so I realize on Sundays, we sometimes have people who are still God's enemies in our group. They don't think of themselves as that way. They don't think of themselves as ungodly. They're just doing their own thing. Maybe we ought to go to church, that kind of thing. But you're still on the other side if you have not acknowledged Jesus as Lord and submitted your life to his rule. So let me ask you, can you trust this God? When you raise the white flag, is he going to mow you down? Or will he accept you? Can you trust him? Or maybe you've already acknowledged Jesus as your Lord, but things have been going badly. Not at all like you expected, not at all to your liking. If God is really on your side, you wonder, why are these things happening? Can you trust this God? How can you know? The Anglican scholar N.T. Wright relates the story of, that a Catholic archbishop used to tell about three teenage boys who went to confession. I suppose the boys' mothers made them go. You got to go to confession. But they were acting like it was all a big joke. You know how teenage boys can be. So they made up things to tell the priest, and they tried to outdo each other when they made confession. Just ridiculous things. A long list of outrageous sins that they'd never committed. And after confession, the first two boys, they ran out of the church laughing. They just thought it was a hoot. The third boy's making his ridiculous confession to the priest. But before he could get away, the priest said, okay, you've confessed these sins, now I want you to do penance. I want you to walk to the far end of the church, and I want you to look at that picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. And I want you to say, I want you to look in his face and say, you did all that for me, and I don't care that much. And I want you to do that three times. So with the priest watching, boy, with no other recourse, 
went to the front of the church, he looked at the picture of Jesus, and he said, you did all that for me, and I don't care that much. And then he said it again, but then he couldn't say it the third time because he broke down in tears. And the archbishop who used to like to tell that story, he said, the reason I know about that story is I was that young man. He went on to say, there's something about the cross, something about Jesus dying there for us, which leaps over theoretical discussion, all the possibilities of how we explain this, this way or that way, and it grasps us. And when we're grasped by it, somehow we have a sense that we're being grasped by the love of God. You want to know what we thought of God? Look at the cross. It's the definitive word on how humans think about God. But if you want to know what God thinks of us, look at the cross. We are more sinful than we ever dared believe, but we are more loved than we ever dared hope. That's the message of the cross. All right, let me apply this. If you're not a Christian, and by that I mean you have not believed in Jesus so that you've submitted your life to his rule. Now, you might say, yeah, I believe he died for us, and I believe all that stuff. But you've not believed in him so that you've submitted your life to him. You've not confessed Jesus as your Lord. Will you not do so? Will you not trust him? He's proven that he's trustworthy. He will listen and forgive you and take you in. We will take you in. I urge you to do so. If you are a Christian, if you have confessed Jesus as Lord, and then let me suggest this, start boasting in God. Boast in him. Take these things that you know in your head and speak them out your mouth. Tell others how good, how surprising, how remarkable God is. Paul writes, we also rejoice, literally we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've now received reconciliation. There's something powerful about saying it. It's why Paul doesn't just say if we believe in our hearts, he says also if we confess with our mouths. Find ways to do that, to boast in God. Write about him on Facebook. Post about what he's like on Instagram or Twitter. Find ways to talk with him about, about him with friends. Share books about God that have stirred your own soul. Boast about him in your prayers. We call that praise. It will help you trust him when things get hard. It'll help you rejoice in difficulty. Boasting about him will change you to be more like him. Let him who boasts, says St. Paul, boast in the Lord and the prophet Jeremiah too. That's not just religious patter. It is life-changing advice. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. God, speak what you want into our hearts and minds. And Lord, right now, I, I, I just want to boast in you. We are not only more sinful than we dared believe, you are better than we ever dared believe. You are bigger. And we boast in you. In Jesus' name, amen.